We're going to be in the book of Zechariah tonight, chapter 9. Take your Bibles and turn there. Zechariah chapter 9. We will read the entire chapter. The burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach and Damascus shall be the rest thereof when the eyes of man, as all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward the Lord. And Hamath also shall border thereby Tyrus and Zidon, though it be very wise. And Tyrus did build herself a stronghold, and heaped up silver as the dust, and fine gold as the mire of the streets. Um, these were port cities for the most part along the coast, and in their trade, the cities mentioned here, especially Tyre, they were exceedingly rich. These were people who had great wealth and believed that their wealth and strength was a sufficient bulwark or wall or source of security to keep them safe. But of course, we'll learn in the chapter that would not be the case. Verse number four, Behold, the Lord will cast her out, and He will smite her out and he will with power in the sea, and she shall be devoured with fire. Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall see it and be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for her expectation, shall be ashamed. And the king shall perish from Gaza and Ashkelon, and they shall not be inhabited. Now, most of these cities are uh, providential or major cities in what would be an ancient Philistia, the Philistines. So, just for context. Verse 6 says, And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And I will take away his blood out of his mouth. And this is talking about the dietary practices of these people who were uh, pagan, and they were idolaters. And this is the, the, uh, the consumption of blood was part of the, their idolatrous practice. And his abominations between his teeth. But he that remaineth, even he shall be for our God. And he shall see, he shall be as a governor in Judah, and Ekron as a Jebusite. And I will encamp about mine house because of the army, because of him that passes by, because of him that returneth. And no oppressor shall pass through them any more. For now have I seen with mine eyes. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly in riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. And his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit, wherein is no water. Turn you to be stronghold, turn you to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will render double unto thee. When I have bent Judah for me, filled the bow with Ephraim, and raised up the sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and made thee as a sword of a mighty man." And the Lord shall be seen over them, and His arrow shall go forth as the lightning, and as the Lord God shall blow the trumpet, and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. And the Lord of hosts shall defend them, and they shall devour and subdue with sling stones, and they shall drink and make a noise as through wine, and they shall be filled like bowls in the corners of the altar. 
And the Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be as the stones of a crown lifted up as an ensign upon his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Corn shall make the young men cheerful and new wine the maids. Our Heavenly Father, I pray the next few moments that Lord, you may lend your insight and help into the interpretation and the understanding of your word. Uh, Lord, these, this is a very descriptive chapter that would have had uh, definable meaning to the people of the day. Lord, we, we need help in understanding it. And then, Lord, making application. So, Lord, I'd help you, I ask your help in doing that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. Of course, you can be seated. Zechariah chapter 9 begins a new section of thought in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, along with Haggai, were post-exile prophets whose primary functions were to provide a vision, encouragement, and hope for those returning from Babylon. Uh, remember, 70 years previous to Zechariah's preaching, um, the nation of Judah and the principal city, Jerusalem, were overthrown by the Babylonians. And the city was decimated. It was destroyed. The temple tore down as long as the walls and most of the buildings of, of the city. And this was done by Babylon uh, in judgment by God for the nation of Judah's idolatrous practices and their lack of heart for God. This had already happened in Israel, and that was accomplished uh, many years earlier by the Assyrians. But uh, now, now we have this nation falling. Now we're in the 69th to the 70th year of the judgment uh, that they were to spend. And so now they're, they're coming home as was prophesied, as was pro prophesied by Daniel. And so now Zechariah and Haggai are encouraging these 50,000 returnees from exile, this first group to come home. And they're encouraging them to, to do what God has asked them to do, to rebuild the temple, uh, to rebuild the city, the walls, and to reestablish uh, the nation. And so these men are preaching in this time. Zechariah's main thought from God um, came about halfway through the rebuilding of the temple. And so these people came back, and the first priority was the rebuilding of the temple. Of course, we know Haggai gave them initial encouragement to, to start building. They got off track a little bit, going home to rebuild those, and then he got them on track. Now, about halfway rebuilding the temple, and now God uses Zechariah to spur them on to continue rebuilding this temple. So they're like two and a half, three years in. The total restoration project would take about 50 years to complete. And so they are engaged in this rebuilding of the temple um, when Zechariah preaches. When the people initially came home, we've studied this and talked about this, the people were overwhelmed by the scope of the work and their limited resources. But despite that, because of the encouragement of these preachers, they gave themselves this work and actually were seeing the, the, the project moving forward. But as nearly almost always happens in any major endeavor over time and with the exertion of great effort, well, this wearied the people physically and probably emotionally as well. And so they were tempted to think about giving up, to abandon the project, to forfeiting the temple project and just going home and, and making the best living that they could. But God sent these prophets to speak to them and to spur them forward. Now, with Zechariah, God spoke mainly through dreams and we might, you know, visions, very much like he did to John in the book of Revelation. And, of course, once receiving these visions, Zechariah turned them into messages 
and preach them to the people. The theme was really pretty unified throughout. It was this, don't be afraid. Um, find courage to, to finish this work. Um, find courage to overcome your own inhibitions and fears, to overcome the opposition from the outside, which we learn a lot about in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, don't grow weary in well-doing, but, but continue. Continue your efforts. What you're doing in rebuilding the temple, the city, the nation, is part of God's plan to ultimately restore Jerusalem and Israel to the centerpiece of God's creation. And of course, we know in the future, in the Millennial Kingdom, that Jerusalem will be the center, the epicenter, really, uh, of the universe, uh, not only of the world. And, and they were playing a part in the long chain of events leading up to that. Um, they no doubt want to be part of the plan at the end. You know, they want the Millennial Kingdom to come. They were actually expecting that. And God's, you know, telling them that that day's coming. And just like us today, we're, we're playing a role. We're part of the, a link in the chain of God getting to that great place. And so they would be encouraged to do this, that they would play an important function in God's grand plan of eschatology. And they were to restore Jerusalem. And then one day, uh, restore the, the, the Davidic line. And of course, that would come one day to the Lord Jesus Christ and the prosperity of God's people and blessing. Beginning in chapter 7, God moves from dreams to oracles. An oracle is an Old Testament word, uh, a word of the Lord, we might call it. It, it. It's a divine revelation from God to the prophet to speak to the people. That's basically an oracle. And God, you know, really stops the visions and begins speaking this way to the prophet and then in turn to the people. We see that in the remainder of the chapter. The central message, though, is the same um, to the returning exiles, that they are to be part of ushering in God's divine earthly rule, and they were to continue the work. In chapter 7 and 8, Zechariah focuses on the importance of a number of things in doing the work, and that they were to give themselves not just to the work, but they're also to reform their ways and to be God's people. Not only were they to build the temple, but they were to build their hearts. They were, they were not just to do work with their hands, but they were to, they were to get on their knees. They, they weren't just to, you know, to use brick and mortar, but, but they were to uh, give themselves to the kind of religious exercises that would draw their hearts near to God. One of the things he talks about in these texts was fasting. And the people inquire about fasting, and can they stop? And, and God's saying, you know, that's what fasting is about, just to accomplish an end, but it's about... It's about a means to getting closer to me, about writing your life, about being in the place where you need to be so that I can bless you. And so there's a lot of uh, talking about being right with God um, and using these exercises to do so. These things would strengthen to the work, and these things done right would also help them receive blessing. And as we look into chapter 9, um, God's encouragement continues. In chapter 9, Zechariah paints a portrait of what God is currently doing in their midst and will do through their efforts, and he wants them to see the big picture. And what he shows them here, says to them, is again is to provide incentive, encouragement, and hope. So, Zechariah 9, in summary, envisions the triumphant return of God to His permanent residence in Zion. 
Okay, Zion is the a biblical word that describes the city of Jerusalem, the holy hill. You know, we might call Mount Moriah. That's where the, that's the hill upon which Jerusalem was built. But Zion is referenced to that holy place, that holy hill, that holy mountain, the city of Jerusalem. So Zechariah 9 talks about God, uh, you know, kind of triumphantly coming back with the people from exile to manifest His rule and reign upon the earth from that place. He was saying in chapter 9 that your efforts are laying a foundation for the reestablishment of God's regency and reign in a future coming kingdom. What we would know as the millennial reign. And so the portrait is being painted of restoration of the, the nation, of the city, of its triumph under God's rule, and the prosperity of the people. Now, now that would be hopeful. They were just in Babylon, you know, for 70 years, them and their parents. They're coming back impoverished. They don't have a lot of money. There's not a lot of resources. They don't have a lot. They know they've been the, the objects of God's wrath and punishment, and they're wondering, will God restore them? And so this chapter is saying, yes, God is, you're going to go back, and God's going to come with you. And, and, and you're going to go home and rebuild the city, because one day God's coming to, to rule and reign from that city. And we know, we'll learn a little bit, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be blessed, and you'll be prospered. And so give yourselves to this. And so that's sort of a summary of the chapter. But let's, let's kind of look at it in some chunks at a time, um, you know, starting in verse number 1, 2, and 3. So we look into the text. Um, God begins to paint this picture in these first few verses about God kind of moving with the people out of exile back towards Jerusalem. And the, the way He paints this picture is a little bit like a soldier. And as God comes back, He is going to defeat all of Israel's enemies. Okay. Um, of course, the major world power at the time is Persia. Babylon really was defeated by Persia during their captivity. But what's mentioned here is these first two or three verses mention a lot of names that may be unfamiliar to us. But these are all cities of two principal old arch enemies of Israel, Assyria and the Philistines, mostly coastal cities. These would have been the, the, the people that Israel would have had the most animosity for, the people they had, would feel threatened by. And, and so in returning home, they knew these people um, would be a threat to them. And so God is painting this picture. You guys come home. I'm coming back with you. And by the way, along the way, I'm going to make sure that all our ancient enemies have no power to thwart our, our endeavors. I'm going to conquer them. Now, historically, some of these nations had really already been primarily subdued. Um, the Philistines really, for the most part, had already been conquered both by Babylon and, and then uh, Persia. Uh, they were in a, de a declining place. And as God often does, He used the agencies of other countries to accomplish His purposes. But the point is this, He's saying to them, in, in a way, the cities that you feel threatened by, I'm going to take care of. They're not going to be a threat to you any longer. Um, I'm going to destroy them. You don't need to be worried militarily about your enemies. And so he kind of goes to this list of these Philistine cities and these Syrian cities. And he basically paints this picture. I'm going I'm to conquer this one. And then this one's going to hear about it and be afraid. And then I'm going to conquer this one. And, and he goes through and he says, you know, even, he uses the idea of even Tyre, uh, which was a, a fortified city, a city of great wealth. 
that he, he will even overthrow all of these. So he's painting this picture of marching back and ending their captivity and doing away with their historic enemies and really all of their enemies. Um, this is an important note and something to emphasize and has a little bit of part of our application later. Tyre is in our text a couple of times. And Tyre was a powerful city um, in ancient Israel's day. But even in the days of Persia, they were a very fortified city. They had great wealth because of their commerce and trade as a coastal city. They were kind of known and renowned for their wealth, which was extreme, and their military power. Even though they were small, they had great power. And, and the idea here is that, we need to figure this out, that strength and wealth are not really good indicators of vulnerability or lack of vulnerability. That those are no guarantee that we won't uh, be vulnerable if we don't live right. And so that's what's happening here. So in verse 3 it says, And Tyrus did build herself a stronghold, and heaped up silver as the dust, and fine gold as the mire of the streets. In other words, the idea of if we're wealthy and strong enough, no one can touch us. But verse 4 says, But behold, the Lord would cast her out, and He will smite her a power in the sea, and He shall be devoured by fire. And so he's basically saying, it doesn't matter what these cities do, if they're against you, my people, they can't stand. In verses 5 through 8, it speaks of the fear of these cities that will overtake them as God defeats each one and as He consumes them. In verse 7, there's something interesting here. I'll come back to this at the end of the, of the message. And you look at the verse 7 now, and it says, And I will take away his blood out of his mouth. In verse 6 tells us he's talking about the Philistines. And again, I've already explained this, but the idea was they consume blood as part of their idolatrous practices. And so the Lord's saying, and I'm going to destroy these cities, but he says, I will take away the blood out of his mouth and his abominations from between his teeth. But he that remaineth, in other words, of, of those who survive, you know, my judgment, this is, this is interesting, even he shall be for our God. And he shall be as a governor in Judah. So the idea here is that the, the people who are enemies of God, I will, I will defeat as a nation. But there are people in that nation that I'm going to remove the idolatry from them. I'm going to cleanse them. And I'm going to make them part of my future kingdom. Okay. And... Uh, can you imagine how it had the sound in their ears? So, you know, we, we rightly so say amen to that. We know God includes all people in His kingdom. But it'd be hard for them to hear this. These were ancient and old enemies. And, and they're going, get them, God. Yeah, get Tyre, you know, get Sidon, get Philista, get, get Gaza, get Ashkelon, you know, all Ekron, get all these Philistine cities, all these Syrian cities. You, you, you tear them down. And then God, and they're, and they're like, amen. Then God says, and by the way, some of these people are going to be part of our future kingdom. And they got to be going, what? You know, and there's an attitude there that we might have more than we realize, which we'll make application for later in the message. In verse 9, we move from the immediate context now of God coming back with His people and making them safe in the city and defeating their enemies to a future context. In verse 9, we move from the immediate of their day to a future day. 
that they're a part of in terms of like a, a link in a chain to get there and that their work is important in, in achieving. But the, the prophet suddenly goes now into the future. And the idea is this, what, what you do today matters in the future. That's sort of that thought that what they want is their lives be easy and the Messiah to come right now and the millennium reign to start. And God said, you're going to get there, but he's saying what you do in the day is important in helping us get there. But he moves forward the next few hundred years when the temple would be rebuilt and Jerusalem would be restored and the people of God would, re, would experience a measure of the blessing that's spoken here. But the full grand realization of the kingdom of God would come through the provision of a Messiah and a Savior. And they kind of already understood this. So God said, I'm going to come back with you. You know, we're going to rebuild this kingdom. But the way that the millennial kingdom is going to be established, this kingdom, is through what we would be called the Messiah. What they understood as the Messiah, of course, we know Him as the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that we're going to get there through His power, through His means, and through His provision. So, in verse 9, it, it moves to that Messianic text. It's a prophecy now, the remainder of the chapter, about Israel's future king. And, of course, this king arising from the tribe of Judah to lead and rule the kingdom that he will establish... And of course, these people, they were all about that. As a matter of fact, they were inquiring. You know, they wanted the Messiah, Messiah to come right now. In their minds, they were in exile and coming back, and they expected the kingdom to be established. They were looking for the Messiah right now. But it wouldn't come for 400 more years. What they wanted, and this is interesting, and the Lord addresses the text, what the people wanted was a military savior. They wanted a military savior. They're coming back from exile, and it makes sense. Babylon conquered them. They're under the rule of Persia. Darius sends them home. You know, there's these threats of the Philistines and Syria still around him. Of course, Persia is still there. So the people expected, you know, how are we going to have a kingdom minus a battle and a fight? And of course, we're going we're gonna to have a great God come from heaven and fight for us. So they were expecting the Messiah to come as a military ruler. This was the same expectation the Jews had in Jesus' day. One of the main reasons they, they rejected Christ was not because he didn't show sufficient evidence that he was God, but because they simply didn't, he didn't do what they wanted them to do. And that was to defeat the Romans. This expectation of humanity for God to be triumphant as this warrior and to eliminate all problems is kind of persistent in our DNA. But Zechariah paints and presents their future Messiah, King, and Savior in a different light. So in verse 9 he, he says this, the king's coming. And again they're going, amen, the king's coming. And he's just. Well, what, we, what else we expect but our king to be just? And he's going to bring salvation. Now they would have heard that word as this, he's going to deliver us from our enemies. And of course that's meant, but there's more implied than just to deliver us from enemies and salvation. That would be part of it, but it's more than that. He's going to bring salvation. Which again to them would have meant a political and military ruler. And one day he will come back that way. Of course, we know at the second advent. 
But then Zechariah says something that's probably surprising to those who were not well versed in their, you know, their Pentateuch, their, the book of Deuteronomy and Genesis. Zechariah says, um, our Savior's coming, our King's coming, but here's how He's going to come. He's going to come lowly and meek. Well, how do you overcome our enemies by being lowly and meek? And um, he's not going to be riding a horse or a chariot. He's going to be riding a donkey. <laughs> Donkeys aren't very threatening. Well, if you, I don't know. They actually are if you know about donkeys. But anyway, you ever been bit by a donkey? They're pretty scary. <laughs> and in verse 10, he begins to describe the Savior's power doesn't come from horses and chariots and bows. These are all instruments of war. But His power comes through conquering through peace. And He says, and as crazy as may sound in your ears, He's going to come riding on a donkey, lowly and meek. He's not going to use bow. He's not going to use chariot. He's not going to use military might. But nevertheless, when He comes, He's going to enlarge your borders. And... Uh, it's going to be from sea to sea. And it says, well, actually, it's bigger than that. It's going to be the whole world. He said, when he comes and conquers through peace, he's going to establish a kingdom that encompasses the entire globe. That's, you know, that's pretty exciting. But it had to be a little confusing to them you know, at this point. He says, so it's going to go to the ends of the earth. And, and there's a unique... Won't mean a lot to you. There's a unique mention of Greece here. And some scholars find this interesting that he mentions, I think it's verse 13, about Greece. But Greece would be historically the next great empire of the world. So you had Assyria, then you had the Babylonians, then you had the Persians, and then would come Alexander the Great and the Greeks. So God's really already looking forward. He's like saying, um, I'm, going to defeat, I'm going to defeat the Philistines. I'm going to defeat Syria. I'm going to defeat the, I've already defeated the Babylonians. I'm going to defeat Persia. And I'm even going to be greater than the next world ruler, Alexander the Great, and the Greeks. My kingdom will be greater than all of these, is the picture he is painting. In verses 14 through 17 are about God's power being the source of all the, the victories that Israel will win. Okay, now look at for a second. This is a principle that God wants us to get. And He wanted them to understand. They're thinking, who's going to help us manufacture chariots and bows? We're, we're going to get all the horses to, to move this kingdom to all the corners of the earth. And He's saying, that's not how it's going to work. He's going to come meek and lowly, ride on a donkey. He's going to win by peace. And through these efforts, He's going to expand the kingdom to the entire world. But here's the deal. He's going to do it through His own power, not yours. He's not going to do it with horses and chariots. He's going to do it with His own might. Because He wills it, it will be so. Because that's who He is. This is what He's going to accomplish. Now, they understand who God is, but this picture still 
sort of, they're missing it. So verses 14 through 17 are painting this picture that Israel's victory, your future victory is not going to come the way you think. It's going to come through His own might and omnipotence. In verse 50, he says, the Lord shall defend you. You're going to win you're going to win the way David did. He has this reference, I think verse 15, to the sling. But the reference there is, remember what David said when he came against the giant, the, Philist, uh, the Philistine Goliath? He says, basically, I'm not coming to you in my own might and strength, but in the name of the Lord. Now, I realize the rock penetrated Goliath's skull. But I'm also pretty well persuaded, though David was proficient, that God kind of slapped the rock a little bit harder. And maybe even guided it like a precision missile. I don't know. And David was probably pretty efficient. But you get the idea. In David's own mind, with all his proficiency and all his ability, David understood something that is a struggle for humanity, is that I have real limited power and resource, but God does not. So it's going to be like David's sling. It's how we're going to win. It's going to come through the name and the power of the Lord. And in verse 16, he says, that's what will save you. He says, the Lord will save the same way a shepherd would save his, his flock. Why? Because they're precious to him. The, the same way that like jewels and a crown are precious, my people are precious to me like that. And I will save and I will protect I will do these things. You don't have to. You don't need to. And then verse 17 says, A great day is coming when young people can rejoice through the blessings that I give them. And that's a high view synopsis of the text. This text spans centuries of time. Now, these people are probably thinking this is all going to happen in their lifetime and their day. Just as the early disciples thought all Jesus' initial words were going to happen in their lifetime and day. That's not the way God works. It spans centuries. Its initial fulfillment was made possible through the exile's daily efforts of rebuilding the temple, of rebuilding Jerusalem, Judah's a nation. The Davidic line was, was now secure because, who, because Joshua, the descendant of Aaron, had come, but also Jerubbabel, who was governor. He had never become king. But he was a descendant of David, and through his bloodline one day, because the nation was reestablished and Zerubbabel was back from exile, the Davidic line was now secured. In other words, Jesus, the Messiah, would come from this bloodline. And from this point, and from this effort, and from what you are doing today, you know, he didn't say you won't see this. He's just saying it's important that you do this because one day from these efforts, and from this place, and from this city, this Messiah, a Savior, will come. And then he goes 400 years into the future to the day that Jesus Christ triumphantly enters the city of Jerusalem riding a donkey. It says in the text what happened. And by the way, that comes from Genesis chapter 49. I'm, going to, I'm guessing verses like 17 and 18, um, where this uh, Jacob is blessing his sons. And this may sound confusing back in that day, but he, he says something about um, from your loins to Judah, 
you know, the idea of a Savior is going to come riding a donkey. You can look, it's, I know it's chapter 49, you can find the verses later, but that's the idea. And so this, goes, this, this prophecy goes from Genesis 49, now to Zechariah 9, and it happens, of course, in the Gospels when Jesus comes back. That's the day the Messiah, the Savior, would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. And then it propels from that day, um, I'll use this number, at least 2,000 years into the future. Where do I get that number? Well, because we're at least 2,000 years from the day that Jesus entered the temple. So we get this grand projection. And now he's talking about the eschaton, um, the second advent. You know, Zechariah goes, this, there's going to be a coming when Jesus comes back, the Messiah, the Savior, this ruler, the one who rides on a donkey who's meek and lowly. He's going to conquer and he's going to expand our borders to the whole globe. And he's going to rule and reign in this earth. And your young men and ladies will celebrate. And Israel's going to get a double portion and this great prosperity. And so Zechariah's painting this enormous historical, you know, eschatological canvas of the arrival of the Savior. And of course, these people are just hearing all this going, can all this happen tomorrow? And it's kind of like we think, you know, even so, Lord, come quickly. You know, we, we maybe have a greater insight than they do because we have the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to help us understand. But it's a grand portrait of Israel's future. And God's working through their efforts in bringing a future kingdom that their descendants would one day be a part of. And of course, just if we just stop there, we could just say, well, that's really neat. And it is. And, I, and that's the wrong word. That's, that's amazing. It's it's awesome. It's so, you know, the Word of God has such continuity. Genesis 49, Zechariah 9, you know, the New Testament where the things literally are fulfilled. Over four or five thousand years of continuity. And God's bringing His purposes about. But let me very quickly give you a couple contemporary applications from a text like this. There'll be many. I have two. This first one has been redundant, as many of the messages of the Minor Prophets are. It's trying to get some points across to us. But let's hear it again and maybe anew. An application of this text might go like this. The primary means by which God's people are to experience salvation, victory, and success are to come through the means and the power of our Savior. Amen. The primary means by which God's people are to experience salvation, victory, and success are through God's own provision and power. Now, this is a repetitive theme in Zechariah and in the Minor Prophets. Zechariah himself has already articulated this. How do God's people win? Well, it's not by might. And it's not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. God's power in the text is greater than the might of the Philistines. God's power is greater than the might of the Syrians. God's might is greater than Tyre. It's greater than the strength of Persia. It's greater than Babylon. It'll be greater than the Greeks and Alexander the Great. 
all their wealth, all their status, all their might count for nothing before an omnipotent God. And we are not, as God's people, to copy their means of achieving victory and success. Okay. Okay. Lean in and get this. God's people don't win by the means that the world uses to win. Okay. Sure we understand that? Because we sure give a lot of time and effort in trying to win that way. Through money, success, military, politics. Are you with me? Unsaved people try to win that way. They depend on the currency. They depend on their government. They depend on the size of their military. They, they depend on their fortifications, their economic prosperity, climbing the corporate ladder. But this is not the way God's people are supposed to seek victory. In Zechariah 7 and 8, the prophet talked about the right way to fast and how if we truly fast to seek God, if we really want to know Him, if we ask for His help, well, it's by going to God and allowing God to work for us that we, we can experience the right kind of victory in life. I mean, that's how you get salvation, right? You go to God for it. We can't do it on our own, right? We can't do it through religious practice. We can't do it through religious rites. We don't do, you know, whatever church. We, we get salvation by going to who? God through Jesus Christ, right? Well, that's how we're supposed to do all of life. All of life is supposed to be that way. We want to need something. We, we, we want to actually be a real success in God's eyes. Well, you got to go to God to get it. You have a real struggle in life. It's not necessarily wrong to give good effort to it, but just realize your abilities are severely limited, but His are not. And we find what we really need in Him through His means, through His power. By right relationship with him. David won the battle. Yes, he was proficient with the sling, but David himself acknowledged that he won because of God's power. We're told in the New Testament whatever our hands find to do, do it with all of our might. And yes, doing things right and working hard is a universal principle. We reap what we sow. But the primary reason we are blessed by working hard with our hands is because we're honoring God with that ethic. That's right. Yes, working hard can accomplish something. But honoring God through our work ethic probably accomplishes more. Does that make sense? We can do something through work. But, but the point is, we, we, we work hard with our hands, not just to make a dollar, but we do it because it's right to work that way. It honors God, and then God can bless those who honor Him. It's the ethic. It's what He said about fasting. You can fast. You'll get something done fast. But, if you, but you do it because you're honoring me, because you're seeking me. See, Paul understood this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. 
He says, whereto I labor, striving according to his working, which by the way worketh in me mightily. Paul worked hard, but he fully expected that through his efforts, which were done because it was the right ethic in God's eyes, that God would in turn empower his work. There's a, you see the nuance there? Hard work can accomplish something, but hard work done in the eyes of God for his glory, well, then he gets involved in that. And that's what God's saying. You need to look to me, do what's right, and then let me do the work. So here's a caution for us. If we think we can win in life, gain success, and I'll, I'll make application for me, or even grow the church on human effort and wisdom alone, well, we are misguided and that is folly. Now, I'm not saying being smart and sharp and using principles to our advantage aren't helpful. But I do not believe those things can do what the blessings of God can do. Amen. We should pass out 10,000 tracts because we want to honor God and uh, see His work go forth. But I tell you, if we got on our knees before we passed them out and said, uh, you know, God, we're just trying to honor You. And would you bless these efforts? And we're, God, we're doing this for your glory and honor. We might see much more accomplished like that. We are to do what we can do to honor God, to seek Him, ask for His help, seek His blessing. But if we're truly dependent on Him, ask for His help, we might stand amazed at what can be done by actually looking to and depending on God. I'm just, it's really easy for us to just depend on ourselves and our effort and not on God. And there's a second addendum or associated thought with that, and I'll be finished. Not only do we need to rely on God and seek His power, but we need to share His heart about people. In the text, God does triumph over Israel's enemies. But he does something surprising in verse 7, and I draw this to your attention. He conquers the nation of Syria and the Philistines. He conquers their military might, their, their government. Them as a nation. But then he saves some people out of their midst. And he says, I'm going to add them to my kingdom, as though they were governors in Judah. And it's, it's said kind of quickly. But I promise you, in their ears, it would have captured their attention. The Philistines were an ancient enemy of God, but it's inferred in the text that some would be saved, cleansed of their abominations, and be part of God's future kingdom. What's that mean for us? Okay, I'm almost done, so I need you to listen. You and I need to be cautious and careful about our attitudes concerning those who have positions religiously and politically different than ours. It's very easy for you and me to villainize people who don't share our values. Isn't that true? 
It's easy for us to make evil those who don't know our Savior and share His values. Okay. Now, here to the heart of what I'm saying. You understand Muslims are not our enemy. They are our mission field. They're not saved, and they would do things that we would consider evil. And they are an affront to God. But I'll let God take care of that. They're human beings made in the image of God. And Jesus reached out to people that the Jews considered enemies. In fact, they were told to, to bless them. We shouldn't seek their destruction. We should seek their salvation. Now, that's a little nuanced attitude that we need to check. We all say amen to that, right? Okay, now if we were to rewind some things that we say, some of our attitude about this, we might be guilty of a violation here. Let me dive into some more dangerous territory. Democrats and liberals. The enemies of Fox News are not our enemies. Be slow in your response to that and, and think. They're not our enemies. Sometimes our, our language, our tone, our tenor, our attitude is super adversarial instead of being empathetic and meek. You can disagree with policy and procedure and politics. You have to love the person. If you have any hope that they might share um, your views one day, then they have to share your Savior. And you're never going to get them there by being their enemy. The homosexuals and abortionists may stand in God's judgment in a great way. But so did you before you got saved. And you had no moral superiority to them in God's eyes because all your righteousness was as filthy rags. There's none righteous, no, not one. While it's appropriate and right for God's people to stand for truth and to fight evil, those people are people who stand in need of our Savior. We cannot stand arrogantly or condemnly against those that we think, and compared to us, are great sinners. How about we let God judge the sinners of the world? And how about let's make those people the objects of our love, our help, our empathy, our prayers, and our good works? We are to come out from among them and be holy. And we're to balance that 
with being salt and light to them. Now, there's some intellect and wisdom um, in balancing those things, but they have to go together. Come out from among them, but love them. Don't do what they do, but try to help them. Stand against the views that are contrary to God, but stand as an advocate for them and try to help them. See, here's the deal. If we're not careful, we're going to think being a Christian is just being against everything. Okay. We are against some things. We have to be for God's purposes and mission. And Jesus desperately loved people. God will judge, but we have to love. If we're not careful, um, politically, we're going to be concerned about tax issues, military spending, and border policies. And that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Are you equally concerned with helping the poor, assisting the needy, and caring about the lost, and seeing people you disagree with come to know the Savior? See, Fox News won't cover that for you. And I'm not beating up on Fox. Well, a little bit I am. I'm not sure they're a Christian. But we are. If you're not careful, if you're not really careful, you're going to go someplace that Christians aren't supposed to go. Are you with me? I'm not necessarily against it. I'm saying there's something more than that. And if that's all you can identify with, well, I'm going to say you need to rethink that. Tyre was condemned for its wealth and strength and its godlessness. And if we're not real careful, we're going to have more of Tyre in us than the grace of God. And I just don't want that for us. All right? Let me ask you to stand tonight.